0: and take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, that may seem like a strange text to go to on Easter Sunday, and hopefully we can look at this together and find ground. So I'm going to do my best to engage you because I know that you have a, a pound of egg in your stomachs. Um, children, um, elementary age children can head out with Miss Julia now if, if you'd like. Um, yes, and also, if you need a copy of God's Word, Larry has some right there, um, and, and just throw your hand in the air, and he'd be happy to, to hand you one. First Corinthians 15, we're going to read the first 11 verses together in First Corinthians 15 this morning. This is the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, in which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he also appeared to James, then to the apostles. Last of all, as to one at time the he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was within me, whether it was I or they, so we preach, so you believe. To achieve happiness is the, the pinnacle. To achieve happiness is the greatest good. and that, That's what our culture says to us. Our culture tells us that to achieve happiness is the pinnacle, that it is the greatest good. Our culture says to us, what makes you happy? Find that thing and do it. What doesn't make you happy? Cut it out. Get rid of it. Set it aside. We, we think of idolatry in our culture. We think of idolatry regularly. When we talk about what idolatry is from a biblical perspective, we oftentimes think of a, a wooden statue that Indiana Jones isn't going after. But in reality, uh, what uh, uh, idolatry is, is when we elevate our happiness to the most important thing, when we make ourselves into that graven image and displace God's rightful place in our lives. When God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, He had a perfect, uninhibited relationship with them. There was nothing in the way of God interacting with Adam and Eve. They were in perfect relationship with God. And Adam and Eve were happy. They were perfectly happy. And God said, when He created it all, He said, It is good. But in Genesis chapter 3, we know that the story changes. The serpent approaches Eve in the Garden and asks her one simple question. Did God actually say, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say, do you not see? God doesn't have your happiness in mind. God doesn't have your happiness in mind. Happiness is for you to be like God, the serpent says to Eve. For God knows that when you eat of it, when you eat of the fruit of the tree that God forbade you to eat from, Your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God. Five simple words that became the overture of humanity, became the overture of humanity over and over again. We hear these words, if I were like God, knowing good and evil, if I were like God, knowing good and evil, then I wouldn't need God. I would be independent. I would be free. I would be autonomous. I would be happy. And the overture of the serpent's words rings out in various forms and at every turn each one of us elevates our own happiness to the greatest good. We steep our pursuits in the lukewarm water of self-satisfaction. We hope for our thirst to be quenched. And when our parched tongues experience no relief we curse God and we say, how could this be my life? How could this be my reality? You even care about my happiness. And Scripture tells us the answer is absolutely yes. The resurrection bears witness to the fact that God cares deeply about our happiness, but the cup of cool, living water that we need is not found in the serpent's claims, It's not found in the serpent's claims, but in the unprecedented work and person of Jesus Christ. The physical act of disobedience that brought about death by Adam that brought about physical and spiritual death for us all was broken by the act of obedience the physical act of obedience by Jesus that reopened the possibility of physical and spiritual life for us all you see the, the serpent heralds this message this simple message this message that says indulge yourself right We don't hear indulge yourself, but we usually hear something like this You're worth it. You deserve it. You've worked hard. You've given it your all. But the message that Jesus has for us is much harder, albeit equally as simple, but it's much harder for us to deny yourself. Deny yourself. So this morning, then. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, but on Friday we celebrated the physical death, the physical death and burial of Jesus. A very real historical grounded event that led to a very real historical grounded resurrection. The tomb is in fact empty. Jesus said during the course of his earthly ministry, Matthew records this in chapter 16, verses 24 and 25. He says, This if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, the, the self-indulgence is the seeking to save your life here and now. It's seeking to be happy in the here and now in an earthly sense. It is the denial of self, following Jesus into his death, the loss of life that will result in finding life. So when we turn to our text this morning, we look at what Paul writes to the church in Corinth in in chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. We see something incredible happening. We're going to talk about the historical reality of the gospel this morning as we've been studying the gospel together, what the gospel is, um, and why it's important for us as Christians. When we look at 1 Corinthians 15... Uh, we, we we recognize that just a few chapters earlier in the book, in, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes very clearly to this same church, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. What he's saying is be an imitator of me as I imitate Christ. Be a follower of me as I follow Christ. I am setting the example for you. I am modeling what it means to follow Christ. Christ. And the question is, how can he say that? That seems a little bit arrogant, but how can he say this? He says, Look at my example. He knew that he was daily taking up his cross. He knew that he was daily and actively denying himself and following Jesus into his death. In his second letter that we have recorded uh, to the, the Corinthians, he writes this Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers and toil and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure and apart from other things, that there is a daily pressure on me and the anxiety for all the churches. Deny yourself is the call of Paul." Paul was a man that probably could have had a pretty comfortable life by today's standards. Here's a guy who's a citizen of Rome, probably the most powerful empire in the world. A citizen of Rome. He was of the Jewish upper crust. He was well educated. He was a business, probably a business owner, probably a successful business owner. And of that, Would you like add all of those things up, he he probably could have had a nice white, white picket fence and driven an Audi. Like, that, that's probably where he was at. But Paul, Paul took very seriously the call to deny yourself. Again, five times flogged, three rod beatings, and stoning, three shipwrecks, non-stop danger from all sources. And so we come to this text, we come to 1 Corinthians 15, 1-11 with this in mind. This is the man who's writing this to this church in Corinth. The man who endured all these things, writing to a church to imitate him as he imitated Jesus in denying himself. So as we're in the midst of this series thinking about the gospel, we should remind ourselves of what our definition of the gospel is. You can see that behind me on the screen. The, the definition that we've decided to use of the gospel is this. The gospel is the news that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, died for our sins, rose again to eternally reign as king so, na- so that now there is no condemnation for those who believe, but only never-ending joy. And so, a key element to understanding this definition is seeing that this is grounded in historical reality. To see that this is grounded in real physical events for the Christian life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus must be regarded as real historical and physical. Absolutely. It cannot be thought to be legend, or anecdotal, or mythological, or just a spiritual event. It must be grounded in physical reality. History. It's not something that we talk about a lot, but I think it's really important. Why? And Paul actually gives us three really solid reasons in this text this morning that he that he preaches to or, or writes to the church in Corinth. So I'm going to give you these. We're going to take these in turn this morning. The first reason is that the gospel must be grounded in physical history, is because the truthfulness of the gospel is validated by the physical eyewitness accounts of many individuals. Look at verses 1 and 2. Look at verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word, I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. Paul desires to remind his readers here. He desires to remind his readers of the gospel he preached to them, to preach is just to claim or to, to make known publicly or officially it's just a simple uh, a simple proclamation that Paul made to them of the gospel and then he wants to remind them why which you received right they heard it they accepted it as truth in which you stand they stand it here's the idea of being firm it's a foundation it's their foundation for life the gospel is the foundation for their life they stand in the truth of the gospel, and they're being saved by it, right? He says, by which you are currently, ongoingly, being saved. Remember, the gospel is not a one-time thing, a hear-and-respond activity, but it's an ongoing power by which we are saved every single moment of every single day. God has saved you from his wrath, you he's diverted that unto Christ, and he is shaping you into the image of his Son, Jesus. So the Corinthians then, they received the gospel, they stand in the gospel, and they're being saved by the gospel. And so when we get to verses 3 and 4, right? He just reiterates it. He just speaks it to them again, the details of the gospel. This looks familiar to our definition. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. This was in line with the scriptures, he says. This is the gospel. When Paul wants to highlight for his readers... He wants to highlight for his readers that this was a physical event, and so he lists everyone at the top of his head. He lists everyone who had an encounter with the risen Christ, right? He says, Cephas, who's Peter. Cephas is Peter. And then to the 12, to the disciples, he appears to the 12 disciples, then to a group of more than 500, most of which are still alive, he says, when he's writing this, and to his brother, Jesus' brother, James, to the apostles and then to Paul himself. And that occurs after the ascension. So Paul then goes through these great links to point out the witnesses of this historical side of the resurrection. This actual physical side, these people saw Jesus and interacted with him on a physical level. So now that brings us to our second reason. The second reason that the gospel must be grounded in physical history, and why Paul argues this, is because belief or faith is grounded in the account of a witness. It's a result of the account of a witness. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11, the very last verse in our text. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. So we proclaim, so we make publicly available to you, so you believe. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, so you believe. Whether it was Paul's eyewitness encounter with the risen Christ or on the eyewitness account of another, these eyewitnesses of the death, burial, and resurrection proclaimed what they saw, and those who heard in the church in Corinth, they believed. They believed. This is how we, as people, understand and grow in and begin to grasp the good news of Jesus Christ. It is by hearing the gospel proclaimed. A witness to the power of the gospel proclaiming what it has accomplished in one's life. Paul writes to the church in Rome, he writes, faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. We talk about, in the church, we talk about witnessing, right? That's a word that we use, witnessing. It's a very churchy thing to say. are like, I'm a witness. But I think oftentimes we don't think about what that actually means, because it's sort of taken on this other Definition. This other thing over here that's just from churchy people. But what it means is, okay. So if there's a murder that takes place in Nebraska, a murder takes place in Nebraska, and you're not you're not going to get called. You're not going to get a phone call to be a witness to that murder. Especially if you were in North Dakota when that murder took place. You're not going to be called to be a witness to that murder. You can't really testify to the crime. Because you were two states away, as an eyewitness at least. And when we proclaim the gospel, when we tell the story of Jesus' life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and what it means to another, that witness is grounded in a real historical event, which which is the resurrection of Jesus. It is a spiritual event, but it also is a physical one. And while this body, our bodies, are wasting away here on earth, a new glorified body awaits you in eternity. Our witness must have its foundation in the physical event. Adam's sin was physical. He ate of the fruit. Just a few verses uh, past our passage this morning. Paul writes, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Adam's sin was Physically, he physically ate of the fruit in the garden. He physically took a bite and physically disobeyed God. God's temporary solution, the sacrificial system, which he gives in Leviticus, is, is for God's people. In Leviticus 17.11, God says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your sins, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The author of Hebrews picks up that idea, In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 22, it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So, God's lasting solution, the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus, meant a physical event. Death, burial, resurrection, meant a physical physical event. God's call placed on those who follow Jesus is that we, each one of us, follow Jesus into his death, into his burial and his resurrection, not spiritually only, but also physically. Without the physical events of the gospel, the gospel is powerless, and we are foolish to believe it. We are fools to believe it. Paul writes, just again a few verses later, in verses 17 through 19, in in 1 Corinthians 15, he writes this, And if Christ has not been raised, saying physically here, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be pitied. What is he saying? He's saying, what you believe, your faith is meaningless, and your sins haven't actually been paid for in Christ. If he was not physically crucified, buried, and raised... Your belief is grounded in physical reality. And everyone who has died is done. There is no future for them if Christ was not raised. And if Jesus' work on the cross was for the here and now only, we are the most pitiable people. Others should look at us and marvel at our stupidity. Others should weep over our misfortune. If Christ has not been physically raised from the dead, we are the most to be pitied. That leads us to then the final thing that Paul argues here in this text. The third and final reason the gospel must be grounded in physical history is because it gives meaning to Jesus' claims. It gives meaning to Jesus' claims. Everything that Jesus said prior to the resurrection and his ministry here on earth is given meaning, is granted meaning by the resurrection, the physical resurrection from the dead. Think back to where we started this morning, think about the cultural narrative that elevates our happiness to a place of primacy, to a place of of, of utmost importance, to the peak, to the pinnacle. If Jesus does call those who trust him to follow him into his death, if Jesus does call those who trust him to follow him into his death, where is hope without the physical resurrection? It is a meaningless thing for Jesus to say, it is a meaningless thing for Jesus to say, if anyone would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake would would find it. It's a meaningless thing for Jesus to say if he didn't die a sacrificial death to cover our sins or rise again to end the reign of death. If Jesus didn't die then there's no reason for you to deny yourself. There's no reason for you to deny yourself if Jesus didn't die. His words are worthless because his actions would not have been in line with them. If Jesus wasn't raised, then there was no reason for you not to seek your happiness now. If he wasn't raised, then you won't either be raised, so just YOLO. I... And, and not only this, but if those two things, Jesus' death and resurrection didn't happen and happened physically, then why would we? Why would we deny it? Why would we take up our cross the a symbol of execution? Why would we not just put it around our necks and not put it in its rightful place on our backs? Paul knew this all too well, right? He wants to make this known to the church in Corinth. He knew this all too well. floggings beatings, stonings, natural disasters. Paul didn't go home after a long day at the office or wherever he was hanging out. He didn't go home after a long day, draw a bath, pour a glass of Yellowtail, watch a Netflix original. This is not what Paul did. Paul said he was laboring over the churches. God had charged him with this and longed to know Jesus more by participating with Christ in his sufferings. He writes to the church in Philippi. He writes this, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in death, that by all any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So we're going to look at this and we think to ourselves, so we're going to go, okay, that's fine, Paul, but you don't understand my life. You don't understand me. You don't understand where I've been or where I'm going or where I'm not going. Paul says, I don't need to. I don't need to know that. He says, how many of you have received 39 lashes? How many of you have been beaten with a rod? How many of you have had a mob throw stones at you until they thought you were dead? How many of you have been shipwrecked? And for us here this morning, I'm going to go out on a big limb here and say, none of us. None of us have experienced any of that type of physical suffering in in our lives. So the question then, looking at this text, considering the resurrection of Jesus, considering all of these things, the question for us is, what does it take to follow Jesus? What is the cost? How many of us are willing to sacrifice our earthly happiness or the pursuit of it? We are a sleep-deprived people. Our cars won't start. Our houses don't have as many bathrooms as we like. Our work doesn't yield what we hope. We, We get overlooked for promotions. People slander us openly. We get sick. Our grandparents get sick and die. Our parents get sick and die. Our kids make poor decisions. Our bank accounts read numbers less than we want them to read. Our financial plans are a mess. What if instead of looking for a solution to these problems you experience in this life, you follow Jesus into them? Not looking for happiness now, but happiness to come. How primary is your earthly happiness now? I will venture for everyone in this room. It is too much. It is too high. And that makes us all idolaters. Can we say with Paul, can we say with Paul, when he writes here to the church in Philippi, can we say with Paul, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them all as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. The physical death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that we celebrate today means that we can suffer the loss of all things. That we can suffer the loss of all things here on earth. That all those things are garbage. That's rubbish. The universal call for all those who claim to follow Jesus, is to deny yourself. Deny yourself. For many of us this morning, I think that, that that is something that we consider far too little. We desire extra hours of sleep. We desire to live weekend to weekend. We desire to 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 not have to get our kids out the door in the morning. We desire not to have to face people we may not like. We desire to Pour ourselves into our work. We desire just to be happy. Just to be happy. But the universal call for everyone who follows Jesus is to deny yourself. Is to deny yourself. And if you're not ready to deny yourself even the smallest of earthly pleasures even the smallest of earthly pleasures, then what Jesus says clearly, what Paul says clearly, is that you haven't believed the gospel because you haven't begun to consider what it costs. And if in Christ and if Christ was not raised from the dead by no by all means, let's make our earthly happiness primary. Let's do it. Like I'm I'm right there with you. Christ has not been raised from the dead. Let's make our earthly happiness primary. Let's accumulate wealth. Let's accumulate material. Let's accumulate earthly happiness. Because if he hasn't been raised from the dead, then this is all there is. Let's do it. The fact of the matter is that Christ has been raised from the dead. And the gospel hinges on that truth. The gospel hinges on the truth. Real physical blood needed to be shed. Real physical death needed to be died. So that real physical life could be lived in perfect relationship with God. You and I cannot bring that about. You and I cannot bring about what it makes, what, what, what needs to happen to be happy. Our attempts at earthly happiness are just us grasping at straws to make that happen. It seems to me that we've done a pretty good job of it. I think, I think we've done, we deserve a pat on the back for this. We deserve a pat on the back because we've done a pretty good job of, of making ourselves comfortable, lighting up a bunch of convenience. Never in history have people lived so under so little threat of physical harm. But it lasts for maybe 80 years, a small amount of time. 80 years of denying yourself is infinitely small cost to receive eternal happiness. Eighty years of denying yourself is an infinitely small cost to receive eternal happiness. You're not, you're not saved by denying yourself. You're not saved by denying yourself. Let just get that straight. You're saved by putting your trust in the sacrificial death and the physical resurrection of Jesus to deal with your sin, to divert the wrath of God, to give you right standing with Him. Your response, and the evidence of that response, is to follow Jesus into his death so that you might be raised with him to experience never ending happiness in the presence of God. Let say, Paul as he imitated Christ. Again, the call is to deny yourself. This is what the resurrection says to us. You still hear this word? Gosh, why are we? this is. We're here to celebrate. We celebrate by denying ourselves. I'll leave you this. Mere hours before Jesus was crucified, Peter was confronted with the reality of denial. I think about this a lot. Especially this time of year, going into Good Friday, we think about the story, we think about Peter and his response. What, What happened? Jesus told Peter that he would deny beforehand. Jesus told Peter that he would deny him before the rooster crowed three times. And Peter says this. You're like brash Peter says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And put in the situation three times. Three times. You were with Jesus the Galilean. This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Certainly you too are one of them. Your accent, it betrays you. And each time each of those statements, Peter denies Jesus. And then Matthew 26, 75 records that Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny, do not deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. The call for Peter was not to not deny Jesus. The call for Peter was to deny himself. Deny yourself take up your cross and follow Jesus. To deny yourself is to accept the risen Christ. To do anything else is to deny Him. Let's pray.